Everyone else seemed to have one. A lot of my friends had one. Uh, a lot of them had a lot of them, and some had more than one at the same time. But there I was, a sophomore in high school with no girl to call my own. For years, <laughs> for years, I had never really given it any thought. Valentine's Day would come and would go. I knew people got all mushy about everything, uh, but all I really cared about was candy, and as long as I got that, I was, I was good. And yet something happened my second year of high school. There was a pretty face that I started to have feelings for. And we quickly became friends. We, we went on bike rides. We shared uh, inside jokes. One time she actually made me banana bread when I had hurt my knee. It was good. And every time our eyes connected, that lingering thought grew stronger and stronger. Could this be someone who's more than just a friend? And when she gave me a copy of her school photo, well, that was all the confirmation I needed. <laughs> and I went around to my other friends, and I showed them this picture, and I said, hey, check out this, this picture. Check out my girlfriend. And it was awesome. Suddenly, I was no longer an outsider looking in. I was part of that in-crowd. I had a girlfriend, and it was amazing. That Wednesday night, I showed up at youth group longing to see her, and as I was still in the parking lot, she came running out to me. But the smile that I was expecting to see was not there, and instead, thunder was coming from her mouth and smoke coming from her nostrils and laser beams shooting out of her eyes, and the only thought that my, the synapses in my brain could muster up was, oh no! What have I done? Have you ever asked yourself that question? For me, it's a, it's a weekly occurrence. <laughs> Sometimes a daily occurrence. It takes place when I turn a, a, a nut a little too tight and the bolt snaps. I had that happen last week. Or sometimes it happens when, when the wrong words come out or even the wrong look comes out and you know You've made a big mistake. You know, sometimes those mistakes, they, they uh, result in some type, sort of inconvenience. Sometimes it means, you know, it's, it costs us, you know, a few dollars. Sometimes the cost is a lot higher. And there are other times when it's life-altering. And my question for us today is, what do you do when the what-have-I-dones come with irreparable consequences. A man named Jacob was facing that reality. He had lied. He had deceived. He had tricked his father into giving him something that had already been arranged for his older brother. And as a result, that older brother vowed, the days of mourning for my father are approaching. Then I will kill my brother Jacob. And in an instant, everything changed. What he had attained from dad was this blessing uh, of God's favor. 
Both Isaac and Rebekah, his parents, knew that God had selected Jacob, the second born, to be the recipient of this special blessing and to, to be the one through whom the promise that was given to Abraham, that that would filter on down through Jacob's line. Through illegitimate means, he had gotten it. It was his. But I wonder if he was asking himself, Oh no, what have I done? Could it be that in getting the blessing in the way that I got it, I've messed everything up? Could it be that, that though I've received dad's blessing, I'm now cursed by God? His life right then and there, didn't seem like a blessing. His brother wanted to kill him. He was now a man on the run. He was forced to leave his family, forced to leave his friends, forced to leave the comfort of home and flee hundreds of miles away now to live with Uncle Laban, that guy who had that reputation. What have I done? And we pick up the story in Genesis 28, verse 10 says this, Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran and came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and laid down in that place to sleep. Now I wonder, did the ground feel colder that night? Certainly that rock could not have been comfortable. And I imagine as he drifted off to sleep, that ag the agonizing effects were taking their toll on his body. The anxiety, the nauseating despair of all that had been lost. That was a night that was spent in the aftermath. This was an evening in the valley. And not only had day given way to night, but this must have been a dark night for his soul. One author writes, how bitter it must have been for Jacob to know that his misery had been unnecessary. That it was the creation of his own unbelieving deceit and stupidity. That the vulture that was eating his vitals was reared in his own nest. And maybe you've been there. Maybe you're there right now. Maybe you know that that's exactly where you will be if the secret you've been hiding is found out. This is where all of us would be if we came face to face with the reality of our broken relationship with God. If we were confronted by our own sin, all of these willful acts of rebellion against God, and all of it was laid out on a table before us or posted up there in, in the cloud on social media for all the world to see, we would be right there wallowing in the dark shadow of our shame. In a living room of a small cabin in Mammoth, California, a high school student had come to that point. And disappointment, shame, despair written all over his face as he confessed to me and confessed to the small group of guys that we were with of the darkness that he had allowed into his life years before. And what started out as a curious little dip in the cesspool had become an irresistible reoccurring ritual of bathing in lust-inducing sewage. 
It tried time and time again to break free, but nothing had any lasting effect. In his mind, at that point, he had dove too deep. He had gone too far. There was no turning back. And the question that came haunting him was, what have I done? Of course, that student was not alone. Slavery to sin, it's not the exception for us human beings. It's the rule. It's the rule. It's common to us all, whether it's pornography or habitual lying or stealing or jealousy or anger or pride or gossip or overindulgence or just going our own way rather than living life the way God has prescribed The Bible tells us that none is righteous, no one is innocent, no one's clean. Everyone is addicted to indulging their desires, their heart's desires. Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. And we've read this before, Ephesians 2, it tells us, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That is bleak. Dead in our sin living as creatures of passion each day, living to satisfy the insatiable cravings of our bodies, following Satan's lead, and children of wrath. That's to say enemies of God, fully deserving of his anger, of his judgment. If our eyes were open to the full effect of that reality, I have no doubt that we would be wallowing in the shadows saying, what have I done. And what's worse, the Bible tells us there's no way out of that pit. Try as you may, it's impossible to climb out. You can't fix yourself. You cannot erase the past or do enough good things to right the wrongs and somehow earn God's approval. So what do you do when the what have I done's come with inseparable consequences? irreparable consequences. We've already said there's nothing you can do. So you might as well go find a rock like Jacob and give way to sleep. Thank God that's not the end of the story. Look at the end of verse 11 again. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head lay down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed. And behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it. There in the darkness in an utterly helpless, passive state. That's really what what we are when we're asleep, right? In that moment, God breaks into Jacob's life. This is nothing of Jacob's doing. 
It's not that he suddenly had some epiphany and cried out to God for help. No, it's not that. It's not that he had been searching and all of a sudden he finally found God. No, it's not that. He was lost. He was on the run. He was a man without a home and he had a sworn enemy that he himself had created. Now, this wasn't Jacob's doing. This was all God's doing. And God visits him in a dream. Based on the way the Hebrew is written here, we're led to believe that, that in this dream, have you ever had those dreams where you are, you are startled, you are shocked, you are just, it's all you can do uh, to, to, to hang in there? That's what's going on here. He was utterly shocked. It was if, as if in Jacob's dream, he points to the sky and says, Look, a staircase, uh, angels coming up and down. Oh my gosh, and look, there's God himself at the top. Now some translate the word ladder. Others translate it staircase. It's probably likely that, probably likely, it's likely that Jacob was seeing something that, that resembled something like the staircase of a ziggurat. Some type of, of pyramid-like structure ascending really high. But it really doesn't matter what it looked like. What matters is that his eyes were open to the reality that he was not alone. Planet Earth is not a closed system. There's a spiritual connection that exists between the God who created it all and us down below. There were angels traveling up and down. The dream doesn't tell us why they were traveling up and down, but it is clear that the focal point of all this is God up at the top. God is not checked out. He's not disinterested. He's not given up on these human beings who have managed to make such a mess of themselves in their world. Jacob sees all this. And not only does he see he hears. Look at verse 13. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised. In the moment that your heart sank, that when the sky went dark and you asked yourself, what have I done have you ever had somebody come alongside of you and put an arm around you and say, it's okay. Everything is going to be okay. That happened to me this past week. I, I, was, I, I had had a pickaxe in my hand and I was trying to open up the ground to transplant some plants and as I threw down, I went right into something containing water and it started spewing up all over the place and I thought, Oh my, what have I done? A quick call to the pond guy. <clears throat> we have a pond guy, not a pool guy. 
and I was expecting to hear him chastise me, and he said, don't worry, this happens, everything is going to be okay. And a few hundred dollars later, and it was. <laughs> In a moment of life when Jacob had to have been wondering if God had changed his mind, didn't want to have anything to do with him any longer, that's when God reveals himself and says, my promise still stands. You don't know the ground on which you lie. You're far away from the, the land that I promised your grandfather, but it's going to be yours. And through you and your descendants, all the families of the earth are going to be blessed. And I'm not going to leave you until I've come good on all that I've promised. Imagine what that news must have been like. This is life from death kind of news. This is the doctor saying, I don't know what happened, but the, the, the scans we just took, they're completely clear. The cancer is gone. This is George Bailey thinking he's going to jail because Uncle Harry lost that money and then discovering that his house is full of friends and the debt is paid. This is that girl with the laser eyes and the smoke nose thing. That's her saying, just kidding, I love you so much. That didn't happen. This is the news that high school student got in that cabin when he discovered that the good news of the gospel was not for just when he first placed his trust in Christ, it's for right now. And the blood of Jesus, it covers the multitude of sins that he had committed since from that time when he first placed his trust in Christ and all those sins that he's going to commit in the future. There was now no condemnation for him because of Christ. And he was in Christ and nothing could pull him out of God's tight, loving grip. It's the kind of news that changes everything. It's the kind of news that changes the question from what have I done and moves you to say, Lord, look what you did. Have you ever experienced that news? Have you come to that point in life where you're confronted with the horrifying reality of your own sin? You came face to face with your depravity, face to face with your blindness, face to face with your guilt and shame, your hopelessness, with the fact that your destiny should be an eternity of punishment and separation from all that is good, only to discover that God has already gone before you and cleared the way for you to be completely exonerated, completely forgiven, completely restored. And not only that, he has a place reserved for you in paradise. Whew. My friends, there is nothing better. And if you don't already know that, I so want you to know that. To come to that place where your arm is stretched high in amazement and have words that just, that just come flying out of your mouth. Lord, look what you did. I was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. I, I, I was enslaved and in darkness, and now I've been set free and have been pulled into your marvelous light by the Savior. 
Jacob was utterly surprised by God's unexpected grace. God had shown him goodness when all he deserved was abandonment and death at the hand of his brother. Have you experienced God's surprising grace? You know, many years later, Jesus would point back to this event in Jacob's life. And he said to a man named Nathaniel at the, in the first chapter of the book of John, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending, not on a ladder, not on a staircase, but on the Son of Man. And what Jesus was saying, of course, is that through his work on the cross, he would become the staircase between us and God. He would be the way that we might be reconnected with our creator. And not only that, he not only gives us that first time access to God, no, he's our ongoing connection with the Father. 1 Timothy 2.5 tells us, for there's one God, there's, and there's one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. You see, at all times, everywhere, he's with us, observing us, hearing our prayers, bringing them before God the Father in heaven. That's incredible. We are not alone. Have there ever been times where you have felt so alone, so helpless in the aftermath of the mess that you have created? Even in the deepest, the darkest places, Christ is there and continues to be your connection with the Lord in heaven. From saying, what have I done? To Lord, look what you did Jacob was there. But the response that he has once he woke up is even more dramatic. Verse 16. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I didn't know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. Astonishment and fear, they were the right, right responses. When you encounter the living God, the most powerful and holy being in all of existence, you can't help but be shaken to the core. Shaken and startled, filled with awe and wonder. And so Jacob recognized the place that he, was, he spent the night. That wasn't just any place. This was a special place. This was a hallowed place. This was a sacred place. The place where he came face to face with God. Verse 18. So early in the morning, Jacob took the stone he had put under his head and set it up for a pillar and poured oil on top of it. He called the name of that place Bethel, but the name of the city was Luz at the first. Just as the image of the staircase leading up to God was forever fixed in his mind, so Jacob props up this stone and points it to heaven. He pours oil on top, kind of as a, a thanksgiving offering to God, and at the same time, probably uh, symbolizing God is at the top. There's something special at the top. 
This stone was going to become a sort of Ebenezer, a monument to what had taken place there. And he names the place Bethel, the house of God. And that's when he declares his formal response to God. Verse 20, then Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone, which I've set up for a pillar, shall be God's house. And all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. Now, there's some who read this and they conclude that Jacob is bargaining with God. They think he's making a deal with God here. God, if you, if you bless me, then I'll do this for you. Or like some other people say, God, if you, if you get me out of this mess, well, I'll never do this. I'll never do that ever again. Or you'll see my, my face in church every single Sunday. They think he's bargaining with God. I don't think Jacob's doing that. If he was doing that, certainly we don't want to, to imitate him. But what I think Jacob is doing is simply saying, God, if what you're telling me is true, if the promises you are making are for real, then I'm yours. I believe Jacob is simply doing what anyone should do when they discover that they are the recipients of God's unexpected, his surprising grace. Like those contestants that win on those TV game shows. And they start jumping up and down and they hug the host just like that. When you discover you're the receiver of God's grace, you can't help, can't help but respond saying, Lord, well, well then I'm yours. You're the best and I owe you everything, literally everything to you. And so Jacob says that, that that place will be set apart and known as God's house. And then he makes a vow that his gratitude towards God, that's going to be demonstrated in a very tangible way. Of all the material things that God would give him from that day forward, he promised to give a full 10% back to God. And I don't know if Jacob knew it at the time or not, but my friends, what he is doing right now is setting an example for all those who would come after him who would be touched by the surpassing grace of God. We don't tithe. We don't give a tenth of all we get because we owe membership dues. We don't put money in the offering bag because we need to pay the pastor or the staff to go do the work of God for us. We don't give money to the church so that we can have a nicer clubhouse to meet in. We don't give 10% because that will somehow prove our faith to God and then we can get him to do all that we want him to do for us. We give back because he's given so generously and unexpectedly to us. We give back because he deserves it. We give back recognizing and testifying that every good thing that we have comes from him to begin with. And it belongs to him still. We give back because it shows that we trust him. We give back 
is an act of worship. From what have I done to Lord, look what you did, and now to how can I ever repay you? The answer, of course, is you can't. You can't. There's nothing we could ever do to pay back the goodness that God has bestowed on us. But the way we live our lives, in obedience to him, the way we worship him with grateful hearts, and the way we give of our material possessions back to him, it's the very least of what those who have been surprised by his grace can and should do in response. What is your response to God's surprising grace in your life? Does it show that you truly understand how lost you were? Does it show that you really comprehend how astonishingly good God has been? What do you do when the what have I done's come with irreparable consequences? Will you look to Christ? And you find yourself surprised by the grace that God has provided solely in him. And you respond by saying, Lord, here I am. I'm yours. May my life be a monument pointing others to you. And may the gifts that I give, may they be a testimony of how much you have given me. Here I am. I'm yours. Let's pray.